0: You're listening to Amplify Art's Alternate Currents interview series. Alternate Currents opens space for conversation, discussion, and action around national and international issues in the arts that have a profound impact at the local level. This interview series is just one part of the Alternate Currents blog, a dedicated online resource linking readers to topical articles, interviews, and critical writing that shine a spotlight on artist-led policy platforms, cross-sector partnerships, and artist-driven community change. Visit often and join the conversation at amplifyarts.org backslash alternatecurrents. We recently sat down with artist, organizer, and member of the Osage Nation, Lydia Chishwala, to talk about the ways relationships rooted in reciprocity and care, shape, her collaborative working practices, and might come to bear on the future of arts and cultural institutions. Lydia is an Osage artist with a passion for community, social justice, and environmental activism. Over the past four years, she has led women's circles and co-founded the art collective Holy Mother, which served to connect, encourage, and support femme-identifying creatives in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Collaborating with artists, activists, and organizations within her community, Lydia has striven to facilitate meaningful experiences and generate inclusive narratives through thoughtful art events centering community care, systems of equitable exchange, and healing practices. She has created and taught art curriculum to children ages 4 through 12 with the purpose of encouraging curiosity and understanding of our unique place within the symbolic systems of nature. Prior to the outbreak of COVID-19, she worked as a studio assistant for multiple artists within the Tulsa Artist Fellowship and led community conversations around art as remediation and responsible activism in a time of climate change. Currently, she serves on the board of Post-Traditional, an organization raising the visibility of indigenous contemporary artists, curates a project called Spatial Intimacy, a responsive archive of creative ways to stay connected in a time of physical distancing, and is creating two new bodies of work exploring non-anthropocentric interdependence within a framework of borders and pandemics. Hi, Lydia. Good morning. So happy to talk with you today, and thank you for spending some time with us. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit more about yourself and your background?
1: Yeah, so I think kind of the, you know, the artist bio I've been throwing out lately is uh, I'm a transdisciplinary artist that uh, comes from Oklahoma, but I'm currently living and working across uh, the prairie lands of Middle America. Uh, And so really what that means for me is over the past, since maybe like 2019, how many years is that? What year are we in? Um, Since really probably 2018 or even before, I guess. Um, But really 2019 is the year that I started traveling, I guess I should say. Um, that's when I got to take kind of my first look at a prairie outside of the state of Oklahoma. And, um, it just kind of sparked this like excitement and joy about how similar yet different prairie ecosystems are. And so that's kind of what I mean when I say that I'm traveling through this like middle of America is I'm, I'm really looking to research prairie, um, I come from Pawhuska, Oklahoma originally, actually, even though I say Tulsa a lot um, because I'm Osage and that's where my tribal nation is located. That's one of the districts that we're located in. Um, But I'm also Cherokee, Dakota, Modoc, Chicana. I'm a blending of a lot of things. Um, And yeah, I think something I also tend to put in my bios is that I'm working on becoming because I really feel like life is this really great and beautiful process. And I don't really know how to separate art from that. I think art should also be a process or is a process. Um, So yeah, working on becoming. And I'm here now in uh, Nebraska. This will be the fourth prairie I visited because I was lucky enough to get to visit Matfield Green through the Tallgrass Artist Residency in Kansas Um, last year during the pandemic because it's a very isolated place. Um, So now I'm up here in Nebraska checking out the prairie here.
0: (laughs) That's incredible. What is it about the prairie specifically that that um, is generative for your practice?
1: I mean, I think really the familiarity of it in some ways, um, being raised so close to it, it was a place that I visited both with my family, um, but also through school. Cohuska, um, I went to school there starting in sixth grade and immediately one of the projects that we had, um, was we got put in these little quad groups and, they basically just, like, loaded us up on a bus and, like, shuttled us to the middle of the Tallgrass Prairie Preserve in Pahuska and just, like, opened the doors and then just, like, set us free. And they were like, yeah, go, like, find, like, a quadrant of land and rope it off and then, like, draw what you see on your square And so we had like a big poster board and each of us had to draw like our section of the poster board of what we observed. And then they had us go back like at multiple seasons and do that same thing. And yeah, I mean, I think that's like a really early introduction to like scientific method and close looking and all these things. And um So, I think I'm really passionate just because i've been around it for so long and i've gotten to see it in all these different lenses. I think that there's a deep lineage um, as well because you know the Osage i mean even prior to us being called the Osage, we were part of an indigenous group of people that really formed the prairie um, in North America because the prairie is actually a man made ecosystem. It's made through the repeated and intentional application of fire to land. And this was done for multiple reasons, you know, for clearing out forest, for um, making lines of sight, for bringing in new game um, and also just the balance of ecosystems like what you wanted to grow and how you wanted it to grow. And so I'm just really fascinated in kind of this deep story of the prairie and how it came to be. But I'm also, I think really deeply interested in its modern day relevance, especially um, in regards to climate change. You know, the prairie has roots that go six feet deep. It acts as a really beautiful and um, excellent uh, carbon sink. So it sequesters carbon, I I believe, at a greater rate than even forests. So that's really interesting to me because I think, you know, in the kind of, uh, mainstream discussion, I think on climate change, it's really kind of all about save the forests and absolutely. We need to save the forests, like, especially our old growth forests, forests that have been around for a very long time. Um, but I think that there's kind of, um, a misconception perhaps about what kind of ecosystem we need to offset climate change. Um, So I think the prairie is really generative because it's holding all these different aspects. It's holding both like a deep past. It's holding like hopefully a very deep future. It's holding a crucial place in the present. Um, And I'm interested Yeah, and the relationships that are present there and these really complex um, interdependent relationships. There are things that happen on the prairie that literally can't happen anywhere else. Um, There are things that exist on the prairie that are emergent species that have never existed anywhere else and won't exist anywhere else. Uh, The whole prairie ecosystem, which runs along the Flint Hills or the Osage Hills, however people wish to refer to them, um, that is a migratory corridor that if we lose even like a section of it, we risk collapsing like whole migration patterns for not just like birds, but our pollinators. And so it just, you know, there's a lot happening there. And I think I also like that there's so much happening there in a place in the country where people think nothing happens. Um, So it's just this really kind of, funny, interesting place that's always renewing, always changing. And I find that to be really beautiful. Um, I think it's a, it's kind of like this perfect microcosm in a way of perhaps how I view the world.
0: You brought up that word relationship. I feel like relationships in a lot of ways frame much of your practice, your relationships with human beings, your relationships with non-human beings, other than human beings, more than human beings, kind of um, move your practice forward in a lot of different ways. Will you talk about relationships um, a little more as they relate to your practice, your relationships with your collaborators and how you sustain them, how you steward them? Um, and maybe what happens if those relationships change or, or come to an end?
1: Yeah, so I think, I think all relationships really begin with curiosity. Um, whatever that thing is that makes us want to know about someone else or about something else and to take the time to look and ask questions and to investigate. Uh, I think relationships also really begin in, in a listening place. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I tend to try and form my relationships with all beings in that way, um, to really put forward my curiosity and to be excited to learn and to be excited to, um, yeah, find an understanding so that I know how to interact with this other entity. Um, Definitely when working with non-human, more than human, other beings, um, you know, plant can, mineral can, I'm really thinking about like, again, I think this like deep time, um, especially with geology, the things on this planet have been here for so much longer than we have. And so I just, I feel like when interacting with nature, that there's a level of humility to be had that you know, I was recently in Colorado, and I was just having to reckon with like you know the ongoing joke was like, "Wow, that shit's Precambrian, And it's like, no, but it really is, and what that means is that this is like tens of thousands of years old, and it's just it's seen the world be things I can't even imagine, um, and it will continue to see the world be things like long after me. So I think a type of reverence, I think a type of respect too. Um, But again, I think that can probably be said of all beings, like, you know, human beings seem to exist in these small singular moments. But I also, you know, believe in the laws of conservation. (laughs) So it's kind of like, you know, you exist in this particular arrangement in a short moment, but you're also part of all the stuff that's been around for forever. <laughs> so, you know, it's easy, I think, in in that kind of frame of mind to have deep reverence and respect for kind of everybody you come across. Um. So yeah, I um, I think that's kind of how those relationships start, and I think that they are sustained through yeah, staying in that stance of curiosity, staying in that stance of reverence. I think we really do ourselves a disservice when we believe we know something or know somebody. Um, because something that I think is maybe like one of the universe's great jokes is the minute you think you know something, everything changes. Um, but I also think that's a really great thing. And um, it does allow for relationships to continue to grow and to continue to evolve and I think as far as like relationships coming to an end or changing I, I find that to be inevitable um, and the cool thing about endings is that they're always like beginnings as well so it's like even if you're really thinking like oh this relationship has ended I mean, it, perhaps it has ended, or perhaps you've just begun a new form of that relationship. And I think that sometimes, especially when we're dealing with like interpersonal or human to human relationships, that that can be a scary place because you know we're afraid that we won't ever see them again, and that probably has to do with our short lifespans. Um, but I think I also just really believe even that like we are constantly changing and that like nature we go through periods of rest or needing to withdraw and so um I love to like kind of use like a braided river metaphor of like you know rivers braid they split off from themselves and at times it seems like we're separate from one another but we're really not we just perhaps can't see far enough to when like the joining happens again And maybe, you know, it really does go off and become like its own little tributary over there, but it doesn't change the fact that we started and kind of end as like one body of water. Um, So I think that's how I tend to think about those relationships. Relationships really matter to me in my work because I don't believe in individualism. It just does, I mean, I think it's been sold to us as a really pretty idea and I think it's a really easy trap. But I just... You know, you look around at everything and you can see that it's not true. It's like, I live in a house and I didn't build a single bit of it, but no person did. A lot of people built this house. Um, And that, again, I think is like a good metaphor for the world. Like the reason why humanity has been able to kind of push ourselves outside of a food chain that exists so very really on our planet um, is because We cooperate and collaborate on scales that are just, I mean, I mean, almost unbelievable. Um, So I think relationships really matter to me because where would we be without them? I'm kind of nothing without the people around me. Um, And I think all of my best work really happens when I'm like working with other people and it's more fun that way. It's just a better time. <laughs> um, so yeah. yeah.
0: This was, <clears throat> excuse me, that was a really beautiful metaphor too. That metaphor of the, of the braided rivers, I love that. Um, so you talked a little bit about uh, the set of ethical relations with which you approach these collaborations. You talked about learning, curiosity, reverence, um, reciprocity. Are there other sort of factors that define that set of ethical relations before you enter into a collaborative relationship, whether it's with a person or a prairie, um, plant kin, mineral kin, like you mentioned?
1: Well, I definitely, I also like really, I strongly center consent um, and also capacity. Um, I think we live in a world where it's just kind of, we're used to telling people what to do, and people are used to just doing those things. And I think that we're, I I think things are shifting, so that's really nice. But in the relationships that I've had, especially the artistic ones, um, for instance, in a collective that I had in Tulsa, it was really about what people wanted to do and what people had the space for. And it was really important to me, especially because in our collective, we had so many mothers, to be aware of what it means for people who have a lot going on, who have literal whole lives they're supporting. Um, And so I just, I believe in that consent. I believe in like checking in with people on their capacity. I believe in not really having these like I mean perhaps even expectation at all if that's possible I know you need like a little bit so that things get done like there's like this fine line between like having enough push to get things done um but making sure that push is actually like mutually beneficial and going to actually like you know the beneficial disturbance so like that's kind of like a prairie fire right it's like we're putting just enough pressure on that like all this beautiful stuff is allowed to happen but we don't destroy the ecosystem forever. Like we don't stop it from growing ever again. (laughs) Um, So I kind of feel that way. It's like finding that balance of like, what is beneficial mutually for people? Like how much can they push each other and encourage each other and like, you know, kind of team climb together Um, and how to have sensitivity to when it's like, there's an imbalance or when somebody doesn't want to climb and they just like need a time to rest or like when they want to climb, but they're not strong enough. And so maybe they need to be like pulled or like when you yourself are also in that position and have to then like communicate those things. Um, So I really feel like that communication is important. And I think that for there to be good communication, there also has to be like a level of vulnerability And I think vulnerability is something that can be hard to access because we are taught like to not show that like we're weak or needing of other people. Um, But honestly, I just, I want to know other people's weaknesses. I want to like be able to share mine because I want to know like, yeah, like, okay, well, like who's got this part then because I don't (laughs) like, um, and what part can I grab? Because like you don't, you know, I think it's just, um, it's, I think things work more efficiently when you let people do what they're good at, as opposed to just trying to force them to fit in boxes, um, or to do things that are like unpleasurable to them (laughs) or forcing them to do things, um, in uneven power dynamics. Like, I think that's something also that's like, I've really had to consider, especially I think being an artist, is that there are times and places where I can walk into spaces and like people assume my authority. Um, And then having to kind of like communicate my way back out of that as like, but I'm not, like we all are. Um, So I think decentralizing power is something that's really interesting for me too to consider in relationships, is how to make it be more like a covalent news situation, as opposed to a like, I'm delegating or I'm saying, again, I think that, you know, there's times when those uh, methods of working really do work. Um, And definitely I've found myself in those positions too, where I'm just like, okay, well, like somebody's got to kind of grab it by the horns. Um, But ultimately the, the way that I like to be in relationship is like for it to be kind of that really beautiful form of collaboration where like it couldn't be anything without the people involved, that like no one person could have done that alone. Um, So I am really looking, I guess, for like all the things that kind of create that. So like, yeah, like vulnerability, communication, a respect for capacity, a respect for consent, checking in with people, curiosity. um, Yeah. And also, I guess, allowance, like just letting things be the way they are free from your expectations.
0: Um, I appreciate appreciate that you brought up the idea of the power dynamics too, and a kind of imbalance. What happens when an imbalance in those dynamics exists? Um, circling back to that idea of beneficial disturbance, which is another term that I really love. Um, when you're working with institutions, how are relationships between yourself as an artist and an institution that's asking you to show your work sort of informed by that same idea of beneficial disturbance or, um, you know, influenced by an imbalance in in power dynamics?
1: Well, to be honest, I actually don't really show my work often through institutions. Um, The way I kind of came to art was, you know, I was using it basically just, I think, for my own, like, mental health through much of my childhood. (laughs) Um, I think a lot of artists kind of come to art that way, where they're like, it's just how I feel and I had to get it out. Um, And I think that's deeply true for me as well, that, like, I came to art that way, and then I kind of rejected art. I was like, I'm not going to do art. This isn't for me. Like, I'm going to go be an accountant, and I did enter college as a double business major in accounting and international business finance, and then I kind of, like, you know, went into ethics, and then I went into philosophy, and then I ended up in the art school, And when I was in the art school, even like kind of my goal, even though I was in the studio art program was that I'm not going to be a career artist. Um, I want to have an institution. I want to be a nonprofit. Um, but I felt it was really important to kind of enter through the portal of being an artist because something I had already been noticing, um, I think not with even art institutions, but just like the institution of college was that it was the place that assumed that it already knew what the people coming to it needed. And it wasn't a space that could be responsive to shifting me. And, you know, with as much as I loved art, I realized what I really loved about art was artists. I loved seeing work that people put into the world that caused something to move inside of me um and so yeah I was like I'm going to make this like place um where like those kinds of people can gather but yeah like what is that then like I guess let me go get in community And so I entered the art school and really was like, yeah, like an art student hanging out with art students doing art things and having to think like an artist and having to make projects on deadlines. And, you know, it just was like, eye opening, like, I was realizing, like, oh, there's all these things we're supposed to know how to do as artists, and no one is telling us and also like, yeah, like, I guess if I want to be an institution, I need to be the kind of institution that knows how to tell people, like, these are all the things you're going to come up against and I want to help you like navigate them. Um, And then I did go work for an arts nonprofit. In fact, I worked for several museums and several arts nonprofits over, I mean, really like a decade of my life um, before I actually kind of was like, I don't know if I wanna be a desk jockey. Um, it seems like maybe being an artist is more fun. Uh, so I think having been on the inside of institutions in that way, there still was like an aversion to being like an artist working with them. Um Like, I just wasn't sure if I needed to, if that makes sense. I wasn't sure maybe even if I was ready to. Um, I think for a long time, I kind of struggled with giving my permit, myself permission to say what I wanted to say. And I think when I kind of started getting to the space where I knew what it was I wanted to say or the things that I wanted to draw attention to, I kind of realized that I didn't need the institution for that because they already weren't doing it. Otherwise I wouldn't be needing to do something about it. Um, So it kind of seemed like, why would I rely on the people who are already not doing the thing that is so obvious? Um, And then I think that in doing that, it kind of drew the attention of the institution. And then there was a little bit more desire to collaborate Um, but I think in my personal experiences with the institution, I mean, they really just like vary depending on who within the institution you're working with. And so sometimes it's a little, I think, difficult to talk about institutions in this way that kind of removes the identity, um. Because an institution, in my opinion, I mean, it is like this larger thing. So they say it's slower and it's harder to pivot because it's a lot of people. But to me, that's kind of the point. Like, it's a lot of people. Like, those are people in there. Like, those are human beings who also have feelings um, and who you form relationships with. And so really, it's just... um, finding the people in institutions that you can have good relationships with. And that's not going to be everybody in an institution. And so I think just um, the way that I've chosen to work with institutions is to really not work with institutions, but to work with individuals within institutions. Um, The ones that I like, the ones that are fun and nice and excited and um, are perhaps in better positionality to take certain risks. um, But I think that's also something that's like kind of worth saying is that like, I think I do have an expectation of individuals who have chosen to be in institutions because it's still a choice to enter into that arena and to kind of take responsibility for your community in that way. And something that I um, tend to bring up whenever I have a chance with institutions is kind of the idea of like, you know, corporate social responsibility, because that word seems to like really kind of get straight to the business folks, you know, like, look, I'm not going to tell you to be nice to the like YPOC members of your community, but I am going to throw out a legal term that maybe makes more sense to you, which is that you actually have like responsibility legally to respond to the needs of your community. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think, when working with institutions, I tend to not. I tend to work with people who are in institutions.
0: That's a re- that's <laughs> a good perspective. Yeah, exactly. You know, whether yeah, it's a public like institution like a university or a private nonprofit like an uh, arts or cultural institution, um, I feel like that's a great way to frame it. When so when adopting this this. Um, sort of anti, I don't know if it's an anti-institutional approach. Would you define it as kind of an anti-institutional approach to working with institutions or a more flexible, um, uh, more flexible working approach?
1: I think it's just, it's impossible for me. This is something I've come to realize is like, perhaps I'm inflexible, you know, it's impossible for me to want to work with, um, people who aren't open to other perspective. And I think it's because like, yeah, I center curiosity and I center communication and this willingness to learn and this willingness to listen. And so when I come up against anything, anybody, any institution, I guess that is just very like stagnant, that's very, um, yeah, unwilling to like, know that I am not, White, and I don't come from dominant belief systems, but that I come from these belief systems that are based kind of in this like long, deep time, like sense of like reciprocal giving, both forwards and backwards, because time is not linear. <laughs> like when I'm coming from such a different perspective and people are so closed off to it, then I just kind of know immediately those probably aren't people I want to work with. So I don't feel anti-institutional by any means, really. I just feel like I have no interest in institutions that are not open to learning. And I mean, that's my inflexibility, like (laughs) only flexible people, please. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I mean, I I definitely don't feel like it's anti-institutional though. I definitely know that it has been interpreted that way before um, which is also not interesting to me, um, I think that it can be really hard to work with any type of structure that is rooted in capitalism on anything that is inherently, like, non-dominant culture-driven belief systems on anything that is, like, based in gift ecology, um, on anything that is like asking for collective ownership. Um, And I think because, you know, perhaps that is the only way for current institutions to exist because money is real, Um, even though it's a concept, it's also very like creates tangible um, outcomes. And so I, I think about that a lot, like, you know, Am I asking for the institution to completely vanish and asking for it to become more flexible? Um, I'm not certain. I think what I'm looking for as far as like what I hope the institution is or will be or can become is, I mean, probably going to have to emerge in something different than what they originally emerged from. Because I also like, you know, from an indigenous perspective, I think about like what a lot of the museums here have like meant for my culture or how even they were created. And in America, you know, several museums were created literally in tandem with the genocide of indigenous peoples to then safeguard the memory of the peoples they were actively killing. So I'm like, okay, well, I already obsess of this place, right? Like you built this to be like, don't forget as we exterminate these people that they were once here. Like, so I, I already am maybe not feeling comfortable in that kind of institution. Um, the other part is like, you know, there's a long history of both universities and um museums really all around the world having you know things they shouldn't have but specifically again here in North America like the literal remains of indigenous persons like those are our ancestors and you know we've been able through like the graves and repatriation act to get some of those remains back home Um, But that's also really startling to think about when working with an institution is not just like the provenance of items, but just the fact that like they are still there. And I understand the nuance of why sometimes is because sometimes, you know, like there's no capacity to take them back or there's no capacity to remember the ways to put them to rest or things like that, Um, which, of course, is all like really deeply tied together with like colonialism Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's good to, yeah, again, learn and have the awareness of like histories and where things come from and where they're rooted from to kind of then assess whether or not like you think that the growth will go in a direction that like is what you want, or, you know, sometimes it's a good time yeah, to have a beneficial disturbance and to let something new grow. And I guess I'm just looking forward to what that is. I I feel like I have seen, you know, in the past year and a half, especially like just mutual aid kind of come to the like front and center. And I think that, you know, that kind of framework, I think is a really good framework um i also think it's a necessary framework when we're thinking holistically about you know sustainability of the planet um i think that gift ecologies are really good um modes of working in and yeah i just i think an institution maybe seems too big For that. And I think, again, there's a lot of benefit sometimes in forming up really large groups, but I also, you know, coming from a small tribal nation, I see also a lot of benefit in like having smaller groups that overlap, that are able to like pivot quickly, that are able to like um, have liminal spaces of crossover between other groups are able to collaborate, are able to kind of understand each other in these really special ways because they have taken the time to understand themselves. Um, And yeah, I just, I guess I am wondering if there's like a size limit on that. And if like you exceed that, if like, if that's beneficial anymore. Yeah,
0: yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that. That was um, really insightful and thought provoking and terrific. Um, is there, can people find you on social media? Can people find your work in other places or spaces? Is there anything you have coming up that you'd like to um, tell folks about?
1: Yeah, so I'm on social media pretty much across all platforms as Good with Coffee. And then I have my website, which is uh, lydia chishawala.com. And I guess upcoming work, I am currently working on a creative field guide to Northeastern Oklahoma with a Tulsa artist fellow, Liz Blood. And so that will be, you know, hopefully printing um, early 2022, which is crazy and exciting um uh and then I don't know I mean I guess I've got some other stuff in the works but it's just you know still kind of floating so I feel like I can't uh give it words yet um and then yeah I guess just my ongoing kind of research here of exploring Omaha and (laughs) seeing what it's like and what the prairie is like and what the people are like and what the art scene is like and um I'm sure that will turn something out too at some point
0: that's yeah that's great so glad you're here um and also thank you for taking time to talk today
1: yeah thank you